Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, maybe the most uh, famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. You probably know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life eternal life. When you think of that promise of eternal life, why is that important to you? I think for most of us, uh, the value of the promise of eternal life is something about how long it lasts. Uh, we we want to go on living. Uh, and so the promise of eternal life. The value of that promise lies in the promise of life after death, the promise of going to heaven when we die, or the promise of the resurrection, or another way of putting it, it it's about living again in the afterlife and living forever, uh, living forever even after you die. You know, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John where Jesus himself actually defines the very nature of eternal life. And it, it turns out that the most important thing about eternal life isn't how long it lasts. Uh, there's something else that defines it according to Jesus. Now, we're starting into John chapter 17, and we've been studying through the book of John for quite a little while now, and uh, we're coming to John 17, and John 17 is usually given the title, The Great High Priestly Prayer of Jesus, and it's the closing prayer of the Upper Room Discourse, uh, which began back at, in chapter 13. And if we think about the context in which Jesus offers this prayer, it is literally the night before he's crucified. And perhaps by the time he's saying this prayer, it, he's already in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about 
you know, when the the disciples got up and departed and walked. And in any case, it's only a matter of hours now before Jesus will be crucified. So what is Jesus seeking from God on the eve of his death? And that's what we find in this prayer. It's the closing prayer, this little discussion with his disciples about how he needs to go away and the sending of the Spirit and all of the many things we've looked at already. There's actually seven or eight requests that Jesus makes of the Father in this prayer. We're going to look at just the first one today in which he prays that God would glorify your Son. And the others, uh, he goes on to say that he asks that God would glorify, he says, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He asks God to keep or look after, take care of, secure uh, the disciples in his name. He asks God to sanctify them in the truth. He asks that they may all be one, that they may be with me where I am, and that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. And those are the requests. It's going to take us several messages to work our way through this amazing prayer. But keep in mind that this is what Jesus is asking the Father for the night before he goes to the cross. So today we're looking at the very first request, and we're going to see the basis upon which Jesus makes this request. We're going to see his purpose in asking, and we're going to see exactly how he anticipates it will be fulfilled. And in the end, we're going to discover something really amazing about the nature of eternal life, this eternal life that we receive when we trust ourselves to what God has done for us in Christ and by the Spirit. So let's just take a look at the passage. It's John chapter 17. If you have a Bible, I'd say, uh, why don't you read along with me? John 17. Well, we read this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the beginning of this prayer, the first sentence Jesus says is, the hour has come. And that's his basis for this request. The time has come. Well, what is he talking about? What hour is he talking about? Now, we uh, understand uh, more than the disciples would have at the time, obviously, where Jesus is in the course of his life. And so we kind of know what that hour is. But 
I wanted to look through the book of John and uh, see uh, this idea of the hour. <laughs> what is the hour in the Gospel of John? And if you looked back all the way back in chapter 2, you might recall the story of Jesus changing water to wine at the wedding. When they ran out of wine, Mary came to Jesus and she says, you know, what, what are you going to do about it? She says, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, um, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus is, uh, I, they're clearly not talking about the same thing, but Jesus is saying, look, they, the time, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Uh, now his mother kind of ignores him and we know the rest of that story. But that's the first spot where he refers to my hour and he's saying it's not yet. It's not yet. If we go to uh, chapter 7 then, the book of John, chapter 7, and the context here is uh, Jesus had healed someone on the Sabbath and that created some controversy. And so people were, you know, there's big discussion in the in the community about all that uh, is this the Messiah so on and so forth and, uh, <clears throat> in verse 30 we read this so they were seeking to arrest him but no one laid a hand on him because his hour, had not yet come. Now, that is an interesting clue because apparently his hour involves him getting arrested. Uh, so that's, that's certainly interesting. They couldn't arrest him yet because his hour had not yet come. Then in the next chapter, in chapter 8, in verse 20, we read something very similar says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Why couldn't they arrest him? Well, under the sovereign hand of God, it wasn't time yet. His hour had not yet come. So again, we come to understand that his, his hour will involve him being arrested. Uh, and uh, the context of this text is that Jesus talking about how he's the light of the world and sent by the Father, claiming God as his Father, and uses the expression, I am. And that, of course, upsets all these powerful people. And they want to arrest him, but they can't because his hour has not yet come. In later on in chapter 8 and verse 28, Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, and, and describing this hour that's coming. And so we come to see the, this idea, this concept of him being lifted up. It, where that concept also goes back to the early chapters. In chapter 3, Jesus says, talks about himself being lifted up like the serpent, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And... That hour is coming, but it's not yet. So and this, up to this point in the book of John, it's not yet, not yet, not yet. And 
they couldn't arrest him because his hour hadn't come. He wasn't looking to do any great miraculous deeds when his mother approached him at the wedding because it wasn't his hour. So what is his hour? Well, then in chapter 12, we come to a very interesting passage because suddenly the hour has come. And uh, so we read in chapter 12, Sorry, I've got to find the right verse. Verse 23. So uh, some people came to see Jesus, and Jesus said uh, in verse 23 of chapter 12, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, well, if uh, chapter 17, verse 1 and two isn't meant to remind us of this, then uh, I don't know what would be, because uh, he says, the hour has come, Father, glorify me, glorify your son. And he says, the hour has come here for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. For where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then the voice of God actually comes from heaven and says, I, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. So here uh, we see the hour has come and Jesus gives some description actually of what the hour is. It's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's the hour for the grain of wheat to fall into the ground and die, and because it dies, bear much fruit. It's the hour for the judgment of the world and the casting out of the ruler of this world. Let me just go on. Uh, God speaks from heaven, and, now, and then Jesus goes on. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of uh, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all, pe all people or everything to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the hour has come, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, for the grain of wheat to fall into the ground and die and bear much fruit for the judgment of this world and the casting out of the ruler of this world. For Jesus to be lifted up, signifying how he would die and draw all things to himself. Now, it's a very interesting expression here. It doesn't actually say people in the original text. It just says all. And uh, the implication is people, but... I think if you go on to read, say, Colossians chapter 1, 
or Romans chapter 8, it's not just people that the Lord uh, brings back to himself through his death on the cross. It's everything. And uh, we've already seen how he's the inheritor of all things in the end. So how does he accomplish that in being lifted up and reclaiming or taking back all creation from this ruler of this world that is being cast out? So uh, the hour has come is, is a rich idea, and it does involve predominantly the death of Christ. So he says, so should I say, Father, save me from this hour? So this hour is something somebody might want to be saved from. Uh, And then he says, no, this hour is the reason I am here. Now, just a few verses later at the beginning of chapter 13, we read this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, we have this concept of that ultimate expression of the love of God in Christ, which is his death on the cross. And uh, we see again, his hour had come to depart out of this world. Now, Chapter 13, verse 1, is the opening verse. It's the, it's the sentence John uses to uh, describe the events of the Last Supper. It's his introduction to the Upper Room Discourse. And this prayer that we're starting to look at this morning uh, in John chapter 17 is the closing prayer of this, this sermon that was introduced With that idea, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart. And having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And uh, so his hour, the hour that has come, is the hour of the cross. The hour of the atoning sacrifice of the eternal Son of God, which announces God's judgment on Satan and the world, and which brings salvation to all those who believe and restores all creation into the possession of God under the rule of image-bearing humanity. Uh, So in his restoration of us, he is also restoring creation uh, to serve as our, our home, the home of humanity, which bears the image of God. So that's the hour we're talking about. And what exactly does Jesus ask for in this hour? Well, it's pretty simple. He says, glorify your son. Glorify your son. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. We're going to spend some time a little later on, not this week, uh, thinking about 
what is what is glory and you know, what does it mean to glorify something and how is it used in particular in the book of John. Uh, but today, I just want to say that Jesus is professing his agreement with the mandate of the Father to lay down his life. When he says the hour has come, he knows that's the hour in which he will lay down his life, a sacrifice for sin. And he, when he says, glorify your son, how is the son to be glorified? Well, it's in that sacrifice. And so he's just professing his agreement with the mandate of the Father. This hour of his utter humiliation, there's no more humiliating way to die than to be killed on a Roman cross. And this hour of his utter humiliation is the hour of his ultimate glorification. Jesus is lifted up when the world puts him down. But you know, Jesus is not just seeking glorification of himself or for himself or in himself or by himself. You notice that he's asking the Father to glorify him. That self-glorifying thing is the way of the ancient serpent. It's the temptation of Adam uh, to be your own glory. And Jesus isn't doing that. He's not seeking glorification in himself or by himself or for himself. He's asking for it from the Father, and he has a purpose. Why does he ask? Well, he says just right here, he says, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' motivation is not his own glory, but the mutual glory of the triune God. Him and the Father, the Father and Him, all in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And this glory is accomplished by His fulfillment of the Father's mandate according to the eternal pre-creation covenantal plan of the Trinity. Amen. <laughs> uh, to glorify God in the redemption of lost humanity. So he, he, he says this, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. His real objective is the glory of God, the triune God. Uh, and then he, he talks about how that is to be accomplished. He says, just as, just as you have given him, that is, the Father has given the Son authority over all flesh, over all humanity. So the Father has given authority to the Son. The Son has a mandate from the Father. What's that mandate? Well, if we were to look back uh, in chapter 12 of the book of John, Jesus talks about this mandate that he has from the Father, verse 50 of chapter 12. And I know that his commandment or his mandate is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me, his mandate is eternal life. 
So the mandate of the Father is eternal life. And he says the same thing here. You have given him, the Father has given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So... Uh, the son, the mandate is to give eternal life, and we could say to whom? And the answer to that question would be all whom the Father has given to the Son. Well, that's interesting. And this also is not new in the book of John. If you go back to chapter 6, chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none, not one of everyone that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So who is Jesus giving eternal life to? Well, to everyone the Father has given him. So when Jesus prays for his own glory and for the glory of God, he's also praying for us, for everyone who is, first of all, given to the Son by the Father, and because they've been given to the Son by the Father, they do indeed come to the Son. How many of the, of the people in the Father's gift come? Well, he says everyone comes. And he doesn't reject any of them. And the reason is because he is going to bring them all. So he says, uh, given everyone who's given to the Son and therefore comes to the Son and everyone who looks on the Son and believes or trusts himself to the Son. So uh, we've received this promise from God in the Son by the Spirit. And Jesus says, here's the promise, I will lose not one of all those the Father has given me. So if someone has been given to the Son by the Father, that person will come to the Son. The Son will not reject, but will receive him. That person will trust in the Son and the work of the cross, and they will therefore be given eternal life. That's the conclusion of this whole series of events. He says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. Well, who's going to do that? Everyone who comes to the Son. And who's going to come? 
everyone the Father has given to the Son. So the the glory of God is in the Son's accomplishment of the Father's mandate to give eternal life to those who believe. And this uh, is all in that in that determination of our salvation even before the foundation of the world. Uh, you can read about this in the first chapter of Ephesians. This uh, God has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ. So let me just kind of summarize at this point. The hour of Jesus' sacrifice has come. So Jesus prays that God will glorify him. And we don't think of uh, putting someone to death as glorifying him, but in this instance, that is in fact what's happening. God will glorify him that in his atoning sacrifice, he will glorify the Father as well. And this will be accomplished as Jesus carries out the mandate determined before the foundation of the world to deliver eternal life to those who will believe in him, to everyone who believes in him. So that's a, that's a lot uh, packed all into just a couple of sentences. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. But what exactly does that mean, eternal life? Well, here it is in the very next sentence. Jesus says this, this is eternal life. I just want you to stop and notice for a second that the, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, defined eternal life. Well, that's something we should pay attention to. This is eternal life. And what does he say about that? That they may know you, the one true God, and that they may know the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. So what is eternal life? Eternal life is to know God in Christ. This is what Paul's writing about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he talks about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is talking about what eternal life is, not how long it lasts, that they may know you. That's eternal life, the one true God and the one you sent, Jesus Christ. You know, this confirms what we learned last Sunday that what Jesus accomplishes by the work of the cross is a reconciliation, a restoration of relationship between us and God, a reopening of direct access to the Father. You know, that's the very definition of being alive and not being dead. Uh, this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he tells us that we were dead, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive again in Christ. This is what John 3.16 is about. He says, whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. So we were perishing and we're restored to life uh, by the work of the cross. Uh, this means a life lived in and through or from uh, active spiritual fellowship with the living God. It's the same sort of life Jesus lived when he said this, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing by his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Uh, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him, shows him all that he himself is doing. It's the same life Jesus was talking about when he said, I am the vine, you're the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He's the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A branch apart from the vine is dead. A branch abiding in the vine is alive with eternal life. So how do you know if this promise is for you? Well, it's really very simple. Uh, do you see the sun and trust yourself to him? Just as we read in chapter six, uh, uh, he says, everyone who looks on the sun and believes in or trusts himself to the sun, the sun delivers eternal life to that, to that person who believes in him. So if you believe in him, if you come to him, he receives you. And the only people who do that are the ones the father has given to the son. So how do you know if you've been given to the son? Well, do you come to him? Do you trust in him? Then you are one of those. And you have the promise of eternal life, not the possibility, but the actual promise. In uh, John chapter 5, verse 24, we read this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not might possibly get, but has already eternal life and will not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So if you come to Christ in faith, you have eternal life. It's already your possession. So if you want to know if this promise is for you, I just ask you, do you trust in the work of Christ on the cross for your, to pay the penalty for your sin and to deliver to you that eternal life that was mandated by the Father and that mission carried out by the Son? Do you? <laughs> Will you? I say, come to him. Come to him. Trust in the finished work of the cross of Christ. And you become a participant in the glory of God. Father, we give you thanks for this great gift that you've given to us in Christ. That you've enabled us to see by the Spirit. And we come to you and we trust in you. We recognize that you have given us eternal life in Christ. Oh, Lord, all we can do is thank you. Help us to live lives that say thank you. Help us to 
reflect this great grace and glory, uh, this great love that you've shown to us in the cross, uh, to the people around us in any way that we can find. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.